podcast from the Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, a former Africa correspondent with the BBC. My co-presenter is Tara O'Connor, the managing director of Ark, the pan-African risk consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting. We both live, breathe and work African affairs and operate out of the region and our podcast aims to stimulate ideas among those who share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, welcome. Nice to chat to you. Nice to talk to you too. A little ahead of time, slightly unexpected this one, but uh, good to hear your voice. Exactly, exactly. We're recording this as a special edition of the ARC Insider podcast as Her Majesty the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, is laid to rest after a rather sombre 10 days of national mourning. For us, it's an opportunity to reflect on the Queen's legacy in Africa and particularly as the head of Commonwealth and to ponder on its highs and lows and ask whether the Commonwealth is simply a relic of a colonial past or whether it has continued relevance today and in the future. Yes, and in a moment we'll hear from Ugandan-born Joel Kibazo, a man who, as well as having an illustrious career at the Financial Times and the African Development Bank, was part of the Commonwealth Secretariat. But first, Tara, let's take a quick look back at how the Queen's death was marked around the world. This is BBC News from London. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Britain's Queen Elizabeth II died yesterday at 96 years old. After coming to the throne in 1952, she became the oldest monarch in the world. With the sad news of England's Queen Elizabeth II's death, Buckingham Palace announced that she died peacefully this afternoon. She has become the face of the British monarchy as England's longest reigning monarch. Königin Elisabeth II is tot. Das teilte der Buckingham Palace in London mit. Die britische Monarchin starb im Alter von 96 Jahren auf ihrem Sommersitz Schloss Balmoral in Schottland. On behalf of the government and people of Barbados, I extend sincere and heartfelt condolences to members of the royal family and the people of the United Kingdom on the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, the head of the Commonwealth. Well, Britain's colonial legacy inevitably is bound up with the Queen, whose 70-year reign spanned the end of empire and the emergence of independent states across Africa, from Ghana to Kenya to Zambia, Nigeria and South Africa, to name just a few. As head of the Commonwealth, an association of 56 nations bound together by the shared goals of prosperity, democracy and peace, the Queen was a familiar but also contested figure among many of these lands. Tara, just looking at the number of leaders from around the world, including from the African continent, who've come to pay their respects in the UK, is, is quite a reminder of the breadth of the royal family's reach. Yes, and um, as one who grew up in Zambia, one of my clear childhood memories... Um, was the Queen's visit to come out to the Commonwealth Heads of Government and also to visit one of her favourite leaders, the late Kenneth Kaunda, 
if my memory serves, that um, that visit in turn led to talks which eventually ended in Zimbabwe's independence. Mm. Interesting times. Mm. We'll give more of our reflections in a moment, but first I'd like to introduce our guest, Joel Kivazo, a Ugandan, a former Financial Times correspondent who led communications for both the African Development Bank and at the Commonwealth Secretariat. Joel, welcome from me, Tara in London. And welcome from me, Karen in Johannesburg. Thank you. Very good to be here. Karen and I have been talking about how the Queen's death has been playing out across the Commonwealth and in Africa in particular. And as someone who's been intimately connected with the Commonwealth as a body, what's your sense of the news of how the how the death has been received, Joel? You know, I was um, slightly taken aback. Uh, you're speaking to me from, I'm speaking to you rather from uh, London, having just landed in London uh, from uh, Kampala. And uh, in Kampala, it was front page and uh, front page news. And I looked across on uh, uh, on all the television channels in Kenya and Tanzania and Ghana. And it was the lead item mm. in uh, in all these various news bulletins. So it has uh, really been covered extensively. And I am sure, you know, the funeral will also be covered uh, in great depth. And that, that sort of marks a change because actually when we've, you know, when I've been in Kenya and places when it's been Commonwealth Day, you know, it isn't as it isn't as marked as that. So this is very much part of the Queen herself. Yes, I, I, I think so. I think um, her stature and her significance, I think, is what's brought this about, because frankly, as you go on, I'm not so sure that young people, and I have to say young because Africa is very much a young mm. continent. If you take a country such as mine, the median age is something like 16 or 17. So, and that's very much a reflection uh, across many parts of Africa. So ma- many of that generation really don't know very much about the Commonwealth, what it stands for, how it came about. So it's very so I would attribute much of this to perhaps the glamour that has been brought about by the younger royals, you know, William and Harry, and that sort of thing. And of course, it then connects to their grandmother, the, the Queen. And the Queen is somebody that many people will know. I mean, my my parents' generation and those just below, they will know of the Queen and the stature she holds. So I think it's very much a case of that. And I think you will see it also reflected in the leaders that have come uh, the, to the funeral. That is very much a case of those who have come because it's the Queen and not so much. I wonder the extent to which it's because the Commonwealth features extensively in their everyday lives. Can I pick up on that? I mean, I was in Kenya last week, Joe, and it's interesting because obviously that's quite a symbolic place. It's the place where the Queen learned in 1952 that she would ascend to the throne with the death of her father. But the kind of sense that I saw in Kenya was, was respectful, but also to a certain extent remote, as you say, all over the headlines. But with places like Kenya, there's obviously scars from the Mau Mau era under the British colonial rule in the 1950s, which, you know, among some people are still very, very painful. That's still contested with the UK. Um, And I wonder when you travel around, you know, particularly East Africa, do you get a sense that 
that people are being polite, that the older generation is is reverential, but beneath the surface, there's still some very painful scars? Or do you think the Commonwealth, or perhaps the Queen as a person, has redeemed herself from some of those troubled times? What I see, Karen, is that um, there is a separation. The Queen is the Queen. Mm. And uh, but and you have to accept that for many years, and we're coming up to sixty years for many of these countries being independent. You know, I mean, uh, over the next year or two, much of uh, Africa will have been independent for sixty plus years. So it was as if the resentment of those difficult times and the hardships that were meted out to local citizens was in abeyance. However, mm-hmm. what you now get is this new generation, the, the under 30s are saying, hold on, we need to look at this. So the Queen's being put to one side and really not much of that is attributed to her, but maybe even her predecessors. However, that can no longer be swept under the carpet. And one of the things you've seen in the last few days since uh, Her Majesty uh, died was the starting of this debate of saying, let's have a look and see, but... Why are we celebrating? So there has also been the, those questions. Why are, we, why are we marking this death? Mm-hmm. This is somebody who, are, who came from a system that oppressed us. This is somebody who came from a, a system where there were many deaths because we were struggling for independence. All we wanted was freedom. So I actually think in the reign of King Charles III, you're going to start having that reassessment. It's already started in the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. but you're now going to see it in Africa. And those questions are going to be asked. But, you know, what is the nature of this relationship? Why should we be having it? And I think therein will start being the challenge to some of the Commonwealth as a body, because up to now, it has been this association of friendship and we all love each other, and we're all wonderful. Uh, you know, we've let's forget about uh, the colonial history because we all speak English and we have same legal systems and so forth. I have a feeling that uh, the younger people are going to start questioning a lot of that and and then asking, well, why are we members of a body such as this? And so I think that therein will be the challenge. Well, in South Africa, the economic freedom fighters um, certainly didn't hold back. They obviously have a particular constituency, but they went so far as to say they would not be mourning the Queen. And um, they they use very strong language, actually. They, they said that they argued that the Queen willingly benefited from the wealth that was attained from the exploitation and murder of millions of people across the world. We have other people you know, talking about the demand of the return of the South African Cullinan diamond. I mean, it hasn't taken long for some of those narratives to come out. And one might consider them graceless, one might consider them honest and blunt, um, one might consider them possibly going against a a culture of of reverence for older people that we see very much in this part of the world. But I guess, you know, it's real for many people. Those those are unresolved conflicts and people are seeing an older generation... Uh, pay tribute to what some may see as an outdated organisation. It just may seem very, very remote. It's difficult to tread a fine line, as you say, separate the Queen <laughs> from from the, the, the activities of empire. I think when you talk about the Commonwealth as an institution, the question has to be, what is it doing for me mm. as a person, as a young person, when I'm looking for a job, when I haven't yet got enough to eat, 
is this something that in some ways addresses some of the challenges I face? One of the things you've seen during the Queen's, uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign is the explosion of the populations right across the continent. Yeah. But that has also now meant that there's challenges uh, because most of the, 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 those populations have also become greatly urbanized. That means it is difficult to look for food, it's difficult to find jobs. And so people are now relating to institutions in a way that asks the question, well, how does it help me? What does it do for me? The, the leaders of the 60s and 70s and to an extent the 80s were more concerned about healing after independence because they did not want the rancor. And that also, in many ways, kept them in power. <laughs> you see, let's be frank. So yeah. it was that sort of that uh, rancor that they were sort of trying to heal. That is no longer possible as we're seeing you see, we now have an East Africa that is undergoing drought in so many parts mm-hmm. where, you know, so people are going to ask, well, can the Commonwealth in any way address this? I can see what the United Nations is doing. What will this do? What will this do for me? So I think leaders of the Commonwealth are going to be faced with that challenge. Where its strength used to be used to be in things like democracy, good governance. And actually, while those are still very important, they do not put food on the table. One of the things that the constitutional historian here in the UK, Patrick Hennessy, said of the Queen is that it concludes her death, effectively concludes the disposal of empire, the, the movement of the UK from being a superpower of the early 20th century to medium-sized power in the 21st century. And it was really the Queen's role in that transition uh, that was facilitated by the by the Commonwealth rather than it being about the Commonwealth countries? I think for the Commonwealth countries, there was actually a value. I don't totally agree with Professor Hennessy. Uh, I think there was a value. For instance, amongst the smaller Commonwealth countries, if you're Lesotho or Swaziland, your voice at the United Nations or any other body is frankly going to be very small. Now, I say that not in a pejorative way. I'm just saying that's the reality. In a Commonwealth meeting, you sit according to sort of the alphabet. So you find Uganda sits, my country Uganda sits next to the United Kingdom and is treated as an equal. Now, (laughs) some would say that Uganda and the United Kingdom are not totally equal, perhaps even economically, but (laughs) at the very least, (laughs) it gives you that sort of voice and the ability to say, look, these are my issues. So it has played uh, an important role. The question is, will it be able to continue under King Charles III to play that role of at least being a voice for for the small country, and the concerns that they face and then channeling those onto a bigger uh, platform such as the United Nations or bigger canvas so that, you know, whether it's climate change, if you take something like the Maldives, the Commonwealth has been very good because of uh, being able to address the issues of, uh, you know, the environment and how it's impacting on a, a place such as Maldives. So those kind of issues, it still has a place. The great successes that I recall were, for example, my, as I said, my first paycheck was, uh, was, in the, <laughs> was from the Commonwealth. It was Sir Malcolm Fraser and uh, General Obasanjo. Um, on the sanctions report against South Africa, the eminent persons group visit the critique of South Africa, then a very powerful alliance between the Queen herself and Mandela, uh, President Nelson Mandela, 
particularly say around something um, like um, something like Ken, the you know the execution of Ken Sarawiwa, for example. You know, what would be your expectations going forward? Are there powerful characters that, alongside King Charles III, will carry this forward? You know, I don't know, and I don't see that the Commonwealth will be the forum for that. Because uh, one of the key things that the for, that the Commonwealth did was about the the struggle against apartheid, that was a really really critical struggle. And and whatever anybody might say, the Commonwealth did was absolutely instrumental in that fight and galvanizing support. So it's not by accident that your first paycheck was signed by Malcolm Fraser and General Obasanjo. It was that alliance between the bigger countries and the Africans to say, look, we've really got to do that. And it wasn't just apartheid, it was on the issue of Zimbabwe as well. So that was, uh, that in many ways I see as the high point. Now, since then, there has been a bit of a struggle and uh, good governance, as we've seen on issues like Zimbabwe, and we've seen an issue on issues like that right across the Commonwealth Beat in Pakistan or Fiji have been a challenge. But I don't know that there's going to be that kind of big issue that the Commonwealth can lead on. I see it being a supporter, a supportive organization, and maybe even being a catalyst, especially with things like the small states and the small island states and that sort of thing in the Caribbean and, and, and you know, but... I'm not sure that there will be that big, powerful blow that it can sort of bring to bear in the way that it did uh, against something such as uh, apartheid. Even if it can't um, be the leader in this role, and you've talked about its leveraging potential uh, for smaller countries to be represented in bigger multilateral organisations, isn't it still a really, potentially a really important source of soft power. I mean, I grew up with the Commonwealth Commonwealth Institute in London. Uh, younger people have, gener- have benefited from Commonwealth youth exchanges to try and connect people around the world. Now, I know people do it via the internet, they do it via chat rooms or, you know, uh, or digit- other forms of digital exchange. But is there um, a role for the Commonwealth to play in terms of using its soft power in a really smart way? I think the Commonwealth can still be an instrument of soft power, but it must that soft power must be directed to those things that connect, particularly with African countries. So, for instance, the Commonwealth in many parts of Africa was known because of Commonwealth scholarships, because yeah. that gave young people an opportunity to go and study abroad and so forth and so forth. What you now have is this image of the United Kingdom, sort of not uh, of preventing people from coming into the UK and many countries uh, such as, uh, you know, even Canada and what have you. So in other words, they're not seen as welcoming. Mm. And yet that was a huge instrument of influence because you came, you had your master's at a British university, you opened your bank account, and frankly, you stayed for the next 40 years coming to the UK for once a year to do your shopping and everything else. Now, I think there's a recognition that Britain has missed out on that over the last 20 to 30 years, and as those markets have gone to India, to the United States, and to, and, and, so, and to other places. I think that was what was behind the United Kingdom in 2020, starting the UK-Africa Investment uh, Forum. Yes. That there was that um, you now saw that uh, what, was a, uh, what had been a captive market had gone elsewhere. And I think if the bigger powers, by that I mean Australia, Canada, 
New Zealand and uh, could also, could be seen to be playing a much more active part within the Commonwealth, then I think you would you would actually see a reinvigoration. So one more thing. A lot of the financing of the Secretariat has been reduced. Much of that funding came from the bigger powers. Mm. Much of that has been reduced. So therefore, even some of the work, the core work, whether it's development, whether it's democracy, whether it's governance. So in other words, people have to be see, have to see that this is actually worthwhile. It could be a good instrument. And also on issues such as the environment, if you can start recognizing for Africa, for instance, issues like adaptation, you see, where Africa is concerned on this whole environmental debate, if the Commonwealth could play a role in actually saying, look, Africa needs to be taken in a slightly different way, given that their impact on the global warming is minuscule compared to what others are doing, then you can't have the equivalence of saying that they should do the same thing as any of the other bigger countries. Then I think uh, the Commonwealth will actually be revived and actually have a role. Could it sort of reset itself almost into the to the twenty first century, if you like, by owning the the debate about digitization, for example? Because one of the biggest issues as we become more of an interconnected world is that large swathes of Africa are not connected and effectively disenfranchised. Um, you know, I know it's for some for some sort of older members of the Commonwealth, the idea of aligning themselves with that kind of issue may not be immediately obvious, but it strikes me as, as something when you talk about that commonality and those shared goals and those shared values, you know, the shared challenges also something that uh, the Commonwealth surely could have some leverage on. Yes, on, on, on an issue such as digitization, particularly because it speaks to a younger generation. Exactly. Um, the younger generation in Africa all have smartphones. They are doing almost everything now via, you know, I mean, I had to, I arrived in London and uh, suddenly uh, the housekeeper and Kampala said, um, oh, we've run out of paint to paint the gate. Now, <laughs> why didn't you tell me when I was still there? However, I was able uh, to sort of call the local hardware shop and they said, oh, Mr. Joel, good, good, good. And I was immediately able to pay for a can of paint on my smartphone, my Uganda smartphone, and it was delivered on a little bike and the gate is painted. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that that is how Africa is increasingly operating. However, the costs of digitization are enormous. Mm -hmm. The cables and things that need to be able... So in other words, if you're going to bring it down to the everyday, per, to the sort of uh, average person's level, that is something that could be campaigned on because it will also help in areas such as health because you now have increasingly digital medicine whereby, you know, in a, in a continent where clinics are still at a premium, <laughs> yeah, you see, absolutely. you still don't have enough doctors. So maybe a digital solution whereby, you know, it could help. Same with education. I was speaking to a minister of education only last week and he said if we could only get our digital footprint up, it would help because you've got bigger populations, the resources aren't, aren't that great, but they still have to be educated. And digitization is the solution. So I think on campaigning on something like that might actually give it leverage, might actually give it that uh, oomph and raison d'etre for existence in the 21st century. Aren't there also other issues that need, thorny issues that still need to be addressed? 
we've actually seen the, the, the debate about slavery and, you know, certainly Britain's role in slavery as part of, uh, part of say, Barbados wanting to have its own head of state. Um, we see also, for example, the Australian Premier, the new Australian Premier, talking about rewriting the country's birth certificate to acknowledge the history and role of, of indigenous people in Australia. So the Commonwealth might have to deal with some of these thorny issues again before it becomes very relevant. I... <laughs> <laughs> I think those are very good and important discussions that must be had. But I repeat, there has to be there, those conversations have to be had alongside providing something that the, the populations need, want and feel that actually that helps them. Without that, you become irrelevant. The question is, and I've often been asked, does democracy put food on the table? And fine, yes, I know I'll get beaten up. Yes, Anna, but got to feed the family. <laughs> I don't have a job. So what I'm saying is that those debates, and to an extent we must also understand that some of those debates will be among some of the middle classes <laughs> and some of the, shall we say, the upper classes about your restitution, about governance. I go back to the fact that the majority of the population is not, shall we say, us. They are, for want of a better term, bread and butter people. And so if we can see that there's some issues that touch that group of people or even younger people who are, who are aspirational, and feel that actually by working through the Commonwealth, or if I'm connected to the Commonwealth, this helps me. If it's digital, for instance, does that connect me to the person in Barbados? Does that then help my business, you know, maybe on an agricultural platform okay. or yeah, something? Got you. Then, then mm -hmm. that way, you know, you can be seen that, uh, that then, in other words, what I'm really talking about is relevance. Yes. relevance in the 21st century. And unless you have that, it will, I'm afraid, sort of, uh, you know, will go down in, um, in, in estimation and the way it is used. Relevance, relevance, relevance. Relevance, 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 as you said. Joel, thank you so much. Really interesting. Thank you. And very nice to have a, a, a sort of such an energetic view on this. Thank you. You've been listening to The Arc Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. If you're interested, Arc publishes in-depth risk briefings on 22 African countries around the continent. Contact us to find out more at info at africariskconsulting.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share our podcast on social media and amongst friends. Our sound engineer was Ludwig Boer, and this was a Karen Allen International production. Bye for now.